Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 151, and today's guest is Mike Zani, CEO of the Predictive Index. Let's face it, your company is only as strong as your team, and Mike knows this firsthand. As a former Olympic sailing coach, you can't compete unless you have a winning team of people that mesh really, really well. Yet finding and hiring the right people that help you climb that mountain together is really hard. It was Mike's own use of the predictive index at a former company that opened his eyes to how effective their behavioral assessment tool was in terms of hiring. It was so effective, in fact, that he and his partner, Dan Musquiz, went on to purchase the company to expand its value for helping companies with designing and executing their talent strategies. This interview was a lot of fun because it took place actually at the company's first annual Optima conference, which brought together the best minds in business to learn cutting edge strategies for designing, hiring, and inspiring high-performing teams. We discussed why they started this talent optimization conference and its importance. In this episode of our podcast, we also cover the details on his background, growing up on the water, racing sailboats, and what his experience was like as an Olympic sailing coach, how he got into the business of buying businesses, the history of the predictive index and the value it provides to building teams, how they sassified the business and their plans ahead for growth, advice on scaling a company once you hit product market fit, how to let things go, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that every Monday morning, we send out two weekly digest emails? There's one for Boston and one for New York. It is a weekly email to help you stay connected to all the must-know information from each local tech scene. It includes information on companies, jobs, events, deals, and more. Go to venturefizz.com backslash email and look for the weekly tech buzz emails to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Mike. Mike, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So we're recording this podcast on site at the Optima Conference, which is the first year that the Predictive Index is put on this conference. And I, I, I got to say, hats off to you and your team because this conference, high energy, great speakers. I saw Billy Bean this morning talk about the analogy of baseball and talent and how that applies to our industry. So uh, just kudos to you. I've been blown away. So, so what prompted you to, to even start a conference? Well, talent optimization is, we, we host it at PI, but talent optimization is bigger than we are. You know, talent optimization is, a lot of people have been doing it for years where they really feel that they can take a company strategy and manifest it in the form of, of talent and people. So many people don't do this. You know, they, they, mm -hmm. they, they wing it or have no talent strategy. I like to say, you know, every CEO has a strategy, some good, some bad. You know, they also have a financial plan, but none of them have a talent strategy to tie together. And strategies don't execute themselves. People execute strategies. So it's, this was the, con, you know, Optima is pulling 800 people together who sort of share this vision and want to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this is the nucleus of spreading the word on talent optimization because it, it needs to change. Hiring people, you know, an unstructured interview from a resume or mm -hmm. bringing bias to bear in how you manage or how you hire, how you formulate teams is, is a train wreck, you know. So we're really trying to create a movement. And our, our team's done a great job to bring energy to the first one. We're, we're thrilled with, uh, with the attendance and we hope to triple it next year. 
<laughs> Small number. I right. went on record with that too. Right. Well, David Cancel speaking later. He's been on the podcast, and he's got that same like we're, we're you know we're this tripling. is big. Yeah, this is triple. Like I get to inter- I get to interview him. Uh, I, I saw that. That's yeah, that's going to be fun. He is amazing. Um, well, let's rewind the clock. So, talk about your background because you've got a really interesting background as far as even going back to like what were you like as a kid and kind of you know bringing us through your you know, younger years. You know, I, I was I was really fortunate to be you know, brought up, uh, on the water, you know, sort of three days after I was born, they threw me in a bassinet, put me on a boat. Wow. It was, uh, my dad was in the coast guard and everything was more fun to do on the water. But I, I was given an opportunity to, to sailboat race as a small kid and was pretty good at making a sailboat go fast. So that colored the entirety of, uh, you know, my, my childhood of Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how sailboats go fast. Um, but it, it, it led me to, um, you know, some, some different paths. Like I went to the Naval Academy because, you know, maybe a sailor wants to be in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And I was a Naval Academy dropout. Interesting. Um, you know, wasn't wasn't for me. Uh, landed in a good place, landed at Brown, but, you know, was on the sailing team there. We we won a national championship sailing. And and uh, I tried to get my degree to work for me. I was a geochemistry major, worked as an environmental consultant. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't a passion. I didn't, there was no passion like sailing. So I went back and I coached sailing to put food on the table. And through a meandering way, next thing I knew, I had 12 coaches working for me. I had this little sailing school. Okay. So, like, there was some entrepreneurship there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a great business, but it wasn't a great business model. But there was a, there was a, there was a lot there. I had so much demand for the sailing services mm-hmm. that I pulled in other coaches to fulfill it. And I ended up getting to coach in the 96 Olympics with some just fantastic, fantastically talented athletes, but who were quirky. What do you think that experience taught you? Working with that elite level of, of an individual that's on an Olympic team. You know, the, the, the thing that got me the job um, in the, the Olympic job, 1996 Atlanta Olympics, is we, we took a micro team of uh, four boats, each with two people. And the, sailing has this weird thing. There's only one representative per country. But the boat that I was coaching had a male representative and a female representative, uh, two per boat. So we got a Canadian team to join us. So we got a female Canadian team and a male Canadian team. So we had four identical boats with all sharing the same coach, mm-hmm. which was me. We normalized our boats. And so every measurement on the boat was perfect. So when someone says, I'm in setting eight, everyone knew. Mm-hmm. And we went to a private training location in Wrightsville Beach, which had the same conditions as Savannah, which is where the Olympics went. And we trained there for nine months and shared every piece of data. And three out of those four uh, boats made it to the Olympics, which was just fantastic. Because we, ju- we just crushed everyone with our own little private training training thing. So because three of my four athletes made it, you know, it was like I was either going to be on the U.S. coaching team or the Canadian coaching team. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Now, eventually you did uh, go back to B school. So you went to HBS. So, so, so what was the decision there? Well, after the 96 Olympics, uh, there was a sailboat manufacturer who who asked me to join them. They were doing an acquisition. Mm. Um, and it was a small company with $2 million in revenue buying a big company with like $7 million in revenue. Okay. And they bought the Sunfish and, we bought Sunfish and Laser. You may have heard of the Sunfish. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty famous sure. product and boat. Um, and we did a roll-up of the sailboat industry. And it was the first time since sailing business was was as exciting as sailing. I was like, there is a lot here. Mm-hmm. 
And unfortunately, the sailing industry doesn't have a lot of great mentors. You know, it's a lifestyle business. So there are, there are some people who've made a lot of money and come back to sailing because they'd like to do this in their retirement. Or there's some people that are in the industry who couldn't find their way out. And I actually had, it was, it was the coach from the Naval Academy that was a friend. So I dropped out of the Naval Academy. I remained friends with the coach. He said, get out while you can of the marine industry. Right. He says, you like business, go to a business school, you know, and get out of this marine industry. You're, you know, 29 years old, just boom, get out. And I did that. I followed his advice and um, applied to three business schools and actually got rejected from two. And it was just for like, no one, no one wants me with a quirky background. Right. You know, because you're like sailor, sailing coach, sailboat manufacturer. I don't get it. But then, so just, you know, most business school, like, applications, like, you just got to be who you are, right? So when I've talked to people and asked them, like, what advice would you give to someone who's applying to B-School, one of the elite programs? They're like, well, I applied the first time and I didn't get in because I was trying to, like, make my application sound too much like I wanted to get into the school. Whereas the second time around, I just was myself. So I would think someone would look at your um, experience as very unique and driven, that someone in B school is going to succeed in no matter what program. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the Harvard, you know, sort of uh, you know, selection committee for wanting to add a little weirdness to their <laughs> to their population, and it's a, it's a big class. There's like 950, mm-hmm. you know, so maybe they had the room where the other kids didn't or the other schools didn't. But to to think I got rejected from two, but again in a Harvard business right. school, so I've got luck on I've got some luck on my side. I was myself and I was passionate about what we did, but. That was, that was sort of uh, a big change. And I went to business school to learn. I read every case. You know, a lot of people, there's like 650 cases if you count them up, give mm-hmm. or take a few. And I never went to class without reading a case. And uh, it's because I was really trying to figure out what is this business thing? Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of my, my, I met my wife there. She's like, I think I've read maybe a third of the cases. <laughs> you know, she didn't go there for the same reason. Right. You know. Yeah, it's usually two years to kind of, study learn but also to figure out like your future and embark on a different path she was a bank consultant she already knew all this okay. stuff all right. you know like <laughs> I, I didn't i right. was coming from the marine industry i knew boats you know right. manufacturing and a little bit about marketing so i really went there to learn yeah. and daniel my current business partner and i um we we ran into the search fund model and i, I literally had an epiphany the day the search fund case was taught it was holy crap, you can buy used companies with other people's money and put yourself in charge. I'm like, that's what I want to do. So you figured that out at B-School? At B-School. It wow. was like, in, in one day, the case. Okay. You know, it was it was incredible. Um, so that so that's what you did right after? Like, So what was right after HBS? No, I, I, I took a job, and I took the best job I could get, but mm-hmm. I mostly did that for a signing bonus and for some debt payment. I wanted sure. to pay down some debt before... Because buying a used company with other people's money means you go you go lean. Yeah. You know, there was two years where you really didn't pay yourself. Yeah. You know, so it's on on uh, just just barely paying debt load and living on mac and cheese. <laughs> so bring us through kind of the the different companies or the progression after that. So you know, my business partner Daniel and I we um, we probably didn't know we we knew each other well, but we didn't know each other well enough to we were like work spouses. You know, okay. we were really, you know, married uh, you know, towards looking for and identifying a single company to buy. And we'd work through some of these issues, like we didn't like the same companies. Mm-hmm. I would like something and he wouldn't like it, he would like something I wouldn't like it. So it took some of that figuring it out. We looked at about four hundred companies. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe 50 of them we looked at really hard. We start the whole due diligence process and look at their industries. We probably wrote 15, 20 letters of intent to acquire companies, had some deals fall through, but finally bought a company. And you know, I think one of the reasons we actually bought the company we did is we were running out of cash. Like we had to buy like, and buy soon. So it forced us to make a decision. Yeah, because yeah, I would think it would be hard. If you're looking at 400 companies across all industries and all different types, like... You get one. Yeah. Like the analysis paralysis type of thing where you're like, uh, you know, so what, so what was the first company then? The company was a law enforcement development company, or LEDCO. Yep. Um, and it made rugged docking stations, which enabled hardened computers to survive in cop cars. And, you know, you, you, if... And this was before tablets, so these are you know tough book type mm-hmm. you know computers, and we made all the equipment that sort of made that survive. Now in in new cop cars, they have got touch panels built into the dashboard, which is we knew where it was going. It's one of the reasons we sold the company. But we found this sleepy little manufacturer in Detroit, and had a great founder. He was very charismatic, great product guy. Uh, built the company with his business partner. Probably built it. They, they got over their skis. Like mm-hmm. They had such success that they outpaced their management capability and their team's capability. So when we bought it, it was struggling at its size. Still profitable, but struggling. And they were 65, and they were like, great, we'll hand the baton to you guys. Mm-hmm. And they actually only sold two-thirds of the company. So we cashed them out two-thirds. They left some in. And we were proud. We made we made them more money on the on their one third five years later than they made on the original bite of the apple. And they they, they hug us when they see us. They're like you guys killed it with our old company. And they were happy that we were able to sort of reinvent it and keep the brand. Yeah. So what? So how did you know to go in as operators and hey, this is a, such a great opportunity to market and then to revitalize or reinvent or whatever you end up doing? Like, how did you know how to turn that around? Well, we, we had a strategy, and this is, we, this is, I brought this up at the talk on Optima today. Like, we really struggled the first two years because the people that were there didn't fit the new strategy. Mm-hmm. We wanted to move faster and change things and, you know, evolve the product and, you know, be hungrier on sales. We realized, so there was, the, we, we, we blew up some of the old sacred cows. Or, you know, we just sort of said, no, there's nothing going to be sacred. We're going to just go for it. And we changed the product. We changed the distribution system, we changed the sales team, we changed how we sell, and um, we assembled, there were 45 people there, and uh, only four made it from those 45, wow. which is, which we're not, we're not proud of, but those people weren't the right fit for the new strategy, and we made sure we made happy alumni, and they were successful in their new careers, but uh, the, the 45 people that did stay, we ended up doing four times as much revenue with the same amount of people. You know, just getting people who really wanted to figure out how to make it scale. Um, one of them's here today. Oh, really? Yeah, just came up, gave me a gave me a hug. It was awesome. That's awesome. So, so what was the outcome of, of that? We ended up selling that company to a strategic buyer, um, a company that also made police equipment. And I am proud to say that you know our the old kernel of our business, Ledco, is still their growth engine. They make a ton of rugged docking stations. Mm-hmm. And I still, to this day, don't pass a cop car without looking inside to seeing whose equipment it is. <laughs> you know, like just 
my kids are like, why are you looking in a cop car? I'm like, that's <laughs> <laughs> what we did. It's what we did. Actually, we made these, um, we made some brackets for the U.S. Customs Border Patrol. So when you come into the country, you'll probably see a, a, a Ledco product staring at you and they're taking a picture of your face. We made them so well that they're still there even 10 years later. That's awesome. <laughs> so once the uh, uh, company was sold, so what did you do next? I actually worked for the new, the combined company okay. working on the transition. Okay. Um, you know, we had commitment to our team, made sure that uh, that the two new companies would get combined, and we we did a lot of work using the predictive index actually to to understand there were different cultures. Mm-hmm. How are we going to take the acquirer, which was more top down authoritarian style of culture, and the company that we built, which was we pushed decision making and budgets down. We wanted our team to nimbly make decisions closer to, you know, the people who are in the game are spending the money making the decisions. So you had this clash of cultures. And my job was to do the weave to get these two groups to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I worked for the Newco for nine months. And um, and I told that the two, two brothers owned the acquiring company, um, great guys, and I said, Listen, if we want to take this company to 100 million, I'm all in. I'll stay and keep crushing it with you. But if it's going to be two brothers who want their name on the shingle and it's just going to be, you know, run it your way, right. I'll make sure we transition off really well and that, that, that our people are integrated into your organization to the extent. You know, and at some point he's like, he's like, hey, we're going to just run the business our way. And you're like, great, I'm out. <laughs> so I look for another company to invest in. Okay. So what, what was next? Is next, uh, you know, I'm I'm from the East Coast, so um, from Detroit, I, I wanted to get back to to the Northeast in mm-hmm. some way, shape, or form. Um, I found um, actually it was a it was a previous employee let me know of a company called ShapeUp, which is a wellness uh, software platform. Mm-hmm. It was founded by two super creative entrepreneurs. They were med school students at Brown University, and during their first year of med school, they they started a business on the side which strikes me as like crazy and hard to do. Right. But they did it. They had the energy to do it. And the company got traction. So they took a leave of absence from Brown. And actually, they were only supposed to take a year of leave of absence. And they were going on two years. And finally, the, the dean of the Brown um, Medical School says, hey, you got to either come back or leave and be entrepreneurs, but you can't, you can't do both. Right. So I came in, made an investment, and took over as CEO and you know, occasionally those guys would come in because they still had a big ownership stake, and they're like, "How's it going, Mike?" You know, and they would try and help out in, in their own way. But we 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 had this uh, really entrepreneurial company. There's only eleven people there, and you know, we 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 built it to you know basically hundred employees and had like a tenfold increase uh, in revenue. Um, and actually, when one of the founders grad he when he graduated from med school med school, he came back, worked for me for almost a year. And then I worked for him for six months, transitioning. He was a better CEO for this company. Mm. He's like, I dropped out of med school to found this company and change the world. Yeah. And he was a doctor, brilliant, very charismatic. Uh, knew the product better than I did. Um, and uh, you know, he was CEO until we sold it to Virgin Pulse. And uh, the, actually, this, this makes me thrilled, is a lot of our old management team in Providence is, is the senior management team for Virgin. Um, so that team we built with talent optimization, or the kernel of it, is, 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 is 
core to that new company, even though it's like 10 times the size. I was going to say the combined entity was a great merger of a fit, like because you guys were competitors, right? We were competitors. And, and then it, it went beyond. So Virgin bought ShapeUp, they bought Global Corporate Challenge, and they put three companies together. Then they became one of the big dogs in the, in the space. Right. Then uh, Marlin Equity actually acquired Virgin and Redbrick and put them together. They are by far the biggest player. Yeah. But they, they moved headquarters to Providence. Over though all those combined entities, they moved headquarters to Providence and core core piece of that team is still there. And when I vi- when I visit Virgin Pulse, I see smiling faces of people that I was like, I sat in on your first one of your interviews. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's impressive how much they've scaled and built such a You know you know of Virgin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just did an office tour of their Providence headquarters on uh, VentureFizz. So Oh cool. But cool. yeah, and I've talked to their um, head of engineering for one of our inside series, so all right, so the predictive index. So that's why we're here is to, to talk more about um, PI. So talk about the background, like, because there's a lot of history behind kind of, you know, what how it originated. So what's yeah, the background story? I, oh, it's, it's, it's an amazing background story. I wish I got to meet the founder, Arnold Daniels. Um, he was in World War II, you know, Army Air Corps fighter, you know, bomber pilot. And um, uh, as legend has it, so this stuff... It's so long ago that some of this might be, you know, it's, it's historically <laughs> taking accurate. Taking a life it's, of its own. Yeah, take a life of its own. Yeah. So they were so successful uh, as bomber pilots in World War II. They started doing, the U.S. government started doing some psychometric testing on their crew to find out what, what makes you so successful because they were trying to duplicate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he got interested in psychometrics. When he came back from World War II, um, he went to Harvard and MIT, worked with, you know, some of the great psychometricians that he could find in the New England area. Even worked with uh, the founder of DISC. They talked about, you know, their different psychometric tools. And eventually in 1955, uh, so 65 years ago, you know, they founded the Predictive Index. And it was a small boutique little consulting shop that did psychometrics. And he built that up. Um, and we were client. Daniel and I became clients in 2006 at Ledco when we had a mess of a, of a team. And we, we fell in love with the product because it, it really helped us understand people, how to architect teams, how to build and recombine you know, our organizational structure. So when we sold Ledco in 2009, we tried to buy the Predictive Index. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they listened to us but weren't ready. Right. And um, in, um, in 2014, um, the only surviving um, child of Arnold Daniels, Elizabeth, um, we pitched her in 2009, but in 2014, she's in hospice. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she has no, no, no uh, children, no one to give the company to. Mm-hmm. Uh, she told the then CEO, Nancy Martini, all things being equal, would love you to sell the company to Mike and Daniel. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to make this stuff up. Like, I mean, right. seriously, this was remarkable that they, you know, at this point she's thinking about her father's legacy, not, um, you know, unfortunately she has like a month to live. Um, so Daniel and I were approached by the trustee after Elizabeth had passed and they were thinking about the estate and said, hey, if you want to buy, you know, if you want to buy the predictive index, you can, you can go for it. And um, so we did. And it was like our dream jobs. Like we could finally take the tools that we had fell in love with and we were cobbling together a bunch of stuff and we had the keys. 
we got to do it. We got to take this behavioral assessment and marry it with a cognitive assessment and sort of sassify it, you mm-hmm. know, because it was mostly pen and paper okay. in its history. So once you got the keys, you're like looking at the business, it's like there's a lot here. Um, talk about like how you did kind of take what was a core asset and really start to build upon it, you know, sassify it, you know, technology enable, start to build a team and start to actually build like a different structure, I assume, with the revenue model. Well, there were there were two massive core assets. One was the behavioral assessment itself. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was a really good product, quick and easy to take, gave you good results. You could have purchased that anywhere, though. There were other behavioral tools that would have been a good starting point. Um, but the second asset was the network of certified partners that worked. As a surround, they sold, serviced, consulted, and trained the predictive index and brought it to life within companies. Mm. And there were 47 certified partners when we invested in the company. And we had known a couple of these as they serviced us in our companies previously. And you know, a lot of people from the outside looking in are like, that's a really weird situation, this distribution channel. Uh, we embraced it. We said, this is a differentiator. You can't just understand, you know, the science yourself. You need it to be brought to life. You, you know, you have, someone has to bring it to life within your organization. They have to understand your organization and help you apply it. So we had those two things. We're like, how do we unlock the, the core tool itself, you know, through satisfying it, revalidating the science, rebuilding the tech platform. We added a cognitive assessment to it and eventually added other assessments, job assessment, strategy assessment, engagement assessment to it, to really build up the the core IP. But we also tried to understand what made the network, what was working in the network, what wasn't. And we now have 300 certified partners. So wow. growing it from you know 47 to 300. Mm-hmm. And just took, that took a lot of work. So we didn't know what made a great certified partner. So we had to really understand what they do on a day-to-day basis. And we hope to add 500 next year. Like, really, we're at a point where the unit economics are all working and we're stepping on the gas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a huge total addressable market. Every business with people, <laughs> right? or every organization, I could yeah. say. I mean, it's churches, sports teams. Um, any organization with people could benefit by having a talent optimization tool. And what's the feedback you hear from customers? Because... It is so simple yet so effective, and it's just—it's like wow! Like, you know, you, you simplify it. Yet there's obviously this years and years of research and the originator that created it. There's, you know, there's obviously something to it. Well, it depends who you're talking to. If 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 you're talking, um, you know, coming in through HR, uh, and sometimes the, the the shopper might be more tactical HR. Mm-hmm. There's there's one view. They're trying to solve a problem. I'm trying to hire better, or I have too much turnover. Um, or I'm trying to work on communication for an offsite, and you have a very point solution. But I think the more interesting discovery and conversation is when you're talking to the C-suite. Mm-hmm. And I sort of see three buckets. One person says, oh my God, where's this been all my life? I need this now. Like, let's start. Right. And they usually say, can you help me sell it into my HR department? I want to make sure I'm not a bull in a china shop forcing this on them. Mm-hmm. The second bucket is, that's really great. I don't think I have a problem. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you have people. 
you probably have a problem. You know, <laughs> right. I, you know, if you know business at all, you Inevitable. know, m- most people, you can always improve the performance of your people. So those people will buy eventually, but they're just not quite there. And there are some people who are like, oh, I don't believe in this. I like doing it the old way. And our number one competitor is, is doing nothing, you know, sticking with the old processes, interviewing on resumes with their own biases, you know, managing people the way they want to. But fortunately, in the last five years, I've seen the, the ratio of the enlightened growing. You know, people are really ready for something like this. And I think it's, it's your humans are becoming more um, willing to listen to suggestion from machines. Like Amazon says, you're going to like these shoes. And you go, darn, I like those shoes. You know? <laughs> right. And you're like, how'd you know I, I like those shoes? Or your phone says, I think you're going home. You should take this route. And you're like, I'll go okay. wherever you tell me to go. You know, I'm <laughs> sure it's faster than what I would have come up with. So I think we're getting more accustomed as AI enters our life and suggestion and recommendation that we're going, okay, I'm ready. So let's talk about the platform now because you've had some exciting announcements. So what's, what's, like, what can customers get from you know, the predictive index now with the, the current state of the platform? Yeah, what, what they can get is um, one of the things we struggle with actually is there's so much there that if I, if I, gave, you the, if I gave you the keys to it, you, you could get lost because yeah. it's a very powerful tool. You know, you're helping with people trying to design their talent strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're helping people with hiring, which usually in, in best case, you want, you want your hiring strategy to come after the design. You know, are you trying to build a hospital? where you're trying to do no harm or you try to build a startup where you're trying to break the rules you'll hire different people as a result of that um so you start with design uh then coming up with a hiring plan and key to hiring is what are you hiring for like you may have certain behavioral and cognitive capabilities and preferences and are you a good or bad fit for your role so you, you were a recruiter mm-hmm. in a former life. Correct. You know, my sense is, you know, I, we could say, hey, this is a great fit for a recruiter. You know, mm-hmm. are you a super fit or not for that job? Um, actually, recruiters often make great sales salespeople. Yeah. You're, you're convincing someone about that's what, So I thought I was going to get into software sales, but I had no sales experience. But that's what I ended up doing is recruiting. So They often have very similar uh, sort of fit fits, but you're, you're looking for fit for job. In the hiring process, you're looking fit for, with manager and team, and you're getting fit fit with culture uh, to make sure you're getting those things right. So you help people with the hiring process. Mm-hmm. Then you really help people with the inspire process. You know, how do you make sure that people are really excited about the culture, about the teams they're on, working with their manager, and even interpersonal communications? Mm-hmm. So if you're my boss and you're a high performing boss and I'm a high high performing contributor, uh, but you and I want to kill each other, you know. We got to work on that, right? You know, there's a lot to unpack, and how to, how does the system can help you with that? And from that, so now you've designed, hire, inspire. What's left is you need a measurement tool, a diagnostic. So we measure performance, we measure engagement, um, and we measure the outcomes that come from it. So if you do the design, the hire, and the inspire well, your diagnostic improves over time, right? And those those are the the key functions that the, the platform does. But again, I think you need to also look at our network, mm-hmm. the network of consultants who bring it to life. It really helps when you have someone like one of our certified partners come and understand your business and they're a guide to get started through this journey. Because it people don't go from zero to 100 miles an hour on talent optimization in one day. 
right. it, it, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a journey. Yeah. What's the um, current stage of the business? Uh, you raised capital. What was the decision behind that? Because uh, you know, General Catalyst is amazing VC firm here locally. They are that. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, their portfolio is phenomenal. Uh, so you got, but what was the decision to, to raise venture capital funding? And Yeah. So when we bought the company in 2014, we, we did what? We passed the hat. We went to all of our old investors that backed Daniel and I and several mm-hmm. companies, and we passed the hat and we raised the money in two weeks. And but it was a group of high net worth individuals that knew Daniel and I. We had returned capital to them previously. They trusted us, but they, they also don't help us with strategy. Right. They're like, yeah, you know, send me an annual update, <laughs> you know, and you call them and they don't call you back. Yeah. Great, great people, but they're they're not active investors. Right. They're very passive investors. Sort of three and a half years in, we realized we had a tiger by the tail. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is a this is a really great company. All the unit economics say, step on the gas harder. And we could have gone back and passed the hat again, taking more capital. But we said what we'd like to do is get some get some investors uh, who would also want to sit on the board and help us suss out the really big idea. How do they help us? Someone who's scaled companies, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 fold. And who are really going to not only ask the tough questions, but help explore and brainstorm and what can I do? Who can I put you in touch with? And, you know, General Catalyst was a great fit for us. They were local. Um, Holly Maloney, one of the investors, um, she had been tracking us for two years and was really into the product. Mm-hmm. She had worked at a previous VC fund and they were a client. Okay. So she ran into it there. And she, I think we were just, she was, she was not going to let this one go. Right. And uh, we really like their model. They use uh, executives and residents. Mm-hmm. So we have two, uh, two women who sit on our board from General Catalyst. Uh, Kirk Arnold, who is our XIR, and she's a three-time CEO. And you know she thinks about our business like an operator. Mm-hmm. And she's like, don't worry about that, worry about that. Yep. And she validates Sometimes, you know, CEO is a lonely job sometimes. She validates those things. And Holly's really the deal person, mm-hmm. the capital person. You know, you want to go buy someone? I'll go in there and look at it with you. And, and it's nice having that, the, those, two, those two individuals sitting on your board. And they are thinking about the big idea every day. Kirk wakes up in the shower thinking about our company, and we love her for it. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's when she's a speaker at the event. She uh, is. At the conference as well. Yeah, so. she's, she's moderating. And... You watch that event. She's so much energy. She'll blow you. She'll blow you away. Yeah, I mean, she. I just remember, you know. So I started recruiting in in '98. Uh, so um, you know, her experience, you know, running companies. She just was one of those. People you knew her. That, yeah. I didn't know her personally, but I did. You know, she was a name that you knew. If Kirk Arnold's involved, it's like you know that company's gonna do well type of person. So. Yes, she, the wolf. Why didn't you say so? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Nervewire, like CSC. I took like so. We used to do a lot of professional services, so that's why I knew her so or knew of her so well. But th- so, what about the the business today? You know, you raised the capital, you've been you know, building out the platform, customers. Uh, what's the current stage of the business, scale, growth, looking ahead type stuff? Yeah, so we're growing 40 percent a year, and we're pleased with that growth. Um, we're really trying. And when you asked me the question, "What can the platform do for you?" and I said it, it's complicated, right. we're really trying to simplify how uh, someone like yourself could taste our product and just get started, make it easier to get started. So we think if we can do that, um, we think we have the right 
product. It's just not easy enough for people to start using. I think if we could do that, we can look at 100, 150, 200% growth. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, it's a huge market, and we really think we've, we're ahead of our competition at building a rounded out platform. But you know, once, when you build something that gets a little bit big, it can get complicated quickly. Right. So we have to do we have to do some some hard work and hard decisions on how to make it easier for people to really understand it. We're also continuing to build out the network. You know, we feel that there should be thousands of talent optimization consultants, and they'll start to specialize. You'll have some that are recruiters. You'll have some that are executive coaches. You'll have some that are management consultants who have a people centricity. You know, you'll have, you'll have some that are you know you know PEO organizations. You know. Professional employers organizations. Mm-hmm. You have some that are recruitment process outsourcing. Right.、Um, we have some that are、um, employment organizations, which often service through through HR through their membership. So we're taking a very diverse look at、uh, who can be our our partner network. So it's mul- you know creating a category around talent optimization,、mm-hmm. building out the network, continuing to refine the product and. Obviously, like all companies, selling like crazy. And what, what's the size of the team right now? And what do you plan as far as you know actual hiring for your team over the the next year or so? We're about two hundred and ten employees,、mm-hmm. and we did a. The last two years were pretty big build outs.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we have another year of big build out,、um, but we're we're starting to see scale efficiencies. You know, the the back end ERP system is gaining some efficiencies and. And our business analytics or intelligence gaining some efficiencies. So,、um, like all companies, it, it's sometimes you you just do it with bodies. You know, you throw bodies at the problem. But we're starting to see the, the scale efficiencies come on. I could see us being four or five hundred people by twenty twenty two. And it depends if we inflect the growth the way we think it can. That you know, all bets are off. That number will double. So if you if、uh, someone's an entrepreneur, they hit product market fit. Like, what advice would you give to that person on scaling and growing a company? Because there is a lot that goes into. You can have a great product. There's obviously a market for it, but scaling and hitting those, you know, sales, marketing, customer success, all different functions that operate behind the company. Like, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur on on that matter? Yeah, you know, I think I think the way Daniel and I work,、uh, I carry the title as CEO, even, and he's president and chairman. Um, we're really co-CEOs. You know, it's not like I have more power than him, or he has more power than me. It's just we run different parts of the business, and that that because we trust each other, we like each other, we respect each other.、Um, I, I get to work on making the car go fast, and he he gets to work on keeping the wheels on. And I, I would say that if if you're an entrepreneur and your 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 product and market fit are going, and you're about to scale. It doesn't have to be an equal partner like Daniel and I have, but you need to build out a team of people that you trust. You need to let go of things, and get people. You know, because I don't worry about the wheels staying on. I let Daniel worry about that. You know, and and he likewise. There are certain things that keep him up at night that are that keep me up at night that don't keep him up at night. He goes, Mike's got that covered.、Right. So you really have to build out、um, the team that can take things off your plate to scale. Because if you, if you're still making all the decisions. And it's a trickle decision making up. You make decisions, trickle it back down. That doesn't scale, and it's too slow.、Mm-hmm. And I think if you, you know, if, if you've got to build out a world class team that can do those things for you. 
But what advice would you give to people that do struggle with letting things go? You know, kind of the control freak type person. Um, Fire yourself. <laughs> yeah, and like don't sweat the small stuff, right? Because it's still. No, I mean, if, if you are so unself aware that you can't let stuff go, you're going to limit your organization. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, if I were a growth capital company or a private investor, I wouldn't back them. Right. And it's, it's, that is, that is a catastrophic, you know, weakness that if you really can't let stuff go. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, it can be a huge problem. Now, some people struggle with it sometimes. So if it's very situational, then honestly, I'm, I'm coaching them on saying, how do you identify when that weakness takes you out? Because you have to let go. I mean, Alan Mulally, um, he was the CEO of Boeing and then Ford. Um, you know, he runs the entire company on a single sheet of paper. Red light, green light, yellow light. Everyone gets five minutes. He runs, you know, 80 billion of revenue like it's a 50 person company (laughs) wants to hear from everybody but he lets it go he goes okay let's hear from Europe you know and then Europe's speaking for five minutes all right let's let's hear about you know design and then manufacturing you have to be able to let it go you have to trust in your people Mm -hmm. uh, or you're not gonna you're not gonna get there yeah Uh, it's gonna be a rate limiting effect that's like saying oh I just want a computer with you know one CPU Mm -hmm. like why don't you have a cloud with a billion CPUs right what about scaling culture um, and you know, obviously, predict Vindex can help out with this. But um, some companies struggle with okay, we are starting to really see success, and we need to bring more people on board. And hopefully, we are hiring the right people. But even you know, scaling that culture can be hard. Like, what advice would you give there? It is hard. It, it, scaling culture is hard. I mean, I think you really have to be very intentional with your culture. You know, you got to write it down. You got to codify it. You put it up everywhere. A lot of people do that, um, and that works as a guardrail. You know, that people are allowed to operate in that. I mean, my, my favorite part of that is when I see people in the hallway or hear them in the hallway when they don't even know I'm listening, talking about the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they'll, they're self-correcting it. So you're trying to create the, the values which are guardrails to that. Um, we, we have someone, you typically, when you come into our organization, um, and this is not about our tools, this is about our interview process and our structure. We have one, one of your interviews will be a... It's called a Threads interview, which is Threads is the acronym for our culture, and they are we actually we practice and train on Threads interviewing to make sure people are a good cultural fit, and have a list of questions that we do towards that. and And it's interesting we we, we had a Glassdoor review that was scathing, and they were like that place is like a cult, and they're like <laughs> I thought I was buying in, but I didn't buy in at all. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like someone slips through the process and then they sort of self-rejected. They were like, I don't like that place. It's yeah. too weird. And you're like, that's great. That's a great outcome for them and for us. You know, they didn't fit in our culture. Um, I do believe cultures will morph and modify over time. Um, Daniel and I are very involved with the hiring process um, down at least two levels from us, mm-hmm. sometimes three when they're specialty positions. Uh, Jim Cook... You know, CEO of, uh, founder and CEO of Samuel Adams or Boston Beer Company. Um, he does every onboarding. He onboards every employee. That is unbelievable. It is awesome. And we, Daniel and I have started doing this. We're like, if he's done it and built a, you know, whatever, 3,000 people, he, he tastes beer with them, which is cooler than what we do. Um, <laughs> but he really wanted to give them an appreciation for beer. But we, yeah. What we do is we talk, to, we, we talk to people on the onboarding processes. If we were you, mm-hmm. if Daniel and I were you and starting this company, here's what we would do. Yeah. You know, and, 
And that's, that's really powerful. So we get to meet them. And then what we do is we do it on their first week. And then we do it three months later when they've settled down mm-hmm. into a cadence that's not like, they're like they've got their footing. Right. And we do another, we do another, you know, sort of, we call ourselves refounders, you know, a little refounder meeting um, three months in. And you get much better questions there. Right. Because they're, they're like, wait a minute, I'm yeah. going to call baloney on this. Right. <laughs> and it's good. It's good stuff. What about like one of the challenges I've seen with companies is um, you've got great individual contributors that are you know crushing their job, phenomenal, and they the logical thing is to move them up into management, and then they're ineffective managers. How do you avoid that that trap? Actually, we don't avoid it. We we fall in it, but what we do is we give them a graceful way back. Because being an individual contributor is not like some scarlet letter. You need a pathway for people to make a lot of money mm-hmm. and have a lot of respect and you know power and authority into an organization, even as an individual contributor. Right. You know they they may not have that gift or they may not want to exercise that gift. And we have people who have explicitly said, "I don't want to be a manager. I want to be an awesome individual contributor." And you're like, "Great!" You know, just that realization in and of itself is awesome. Mm-hmm. So we we let people who've gone into management who thought they wanted to and then realize. You know, I'm either not as good at it as I want to be, or I didn't enjoy it as much as I want to be, and we let them have a graceful way back. And and it went back. I don't mean back down level. It's just a different role. Mm-hmm. And um, and good companies should do that. You know, because people don't know. It sounds good. They're like, yeah, I want to be a manager. Right. It's a better title, maybe. You know, people resources. And then they go, oh my god, you wake up in the morning, you have to manage people. <laughs> Not for everybody. Yeah, Yeah, it's not for everybody. Um, We do try and ask some of those tough questions beforehand, but you people get through, Mm -hmm. and and they should get through because sometimes people don't know they need to try it. They really do. So, any uh, recommendations you have these days of uh, books or podcasts? Uh, You know, it could be professional, but it also could be for fun. Doesn't always have to be business. The. the book that I would recommend to, to most people from business right now is Play Bigger, okay. which is a book on category creation. Mm. And it's, it's really influenced a lot of what we're doing with talent optimization, to create a category around what you're doing. And your, your goal as a company is to be the king of that category. But the category is bigger than you are. And there's some cool examples. One, it's a very well-written book. Um, Kevin Maney, one of the uh, authors, is here. He spoke today yeah. on category creation, mm-hmm. um, and he's a, he's a brilliant thinker. But you know, the 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 idea is to create a category that is discernibly different, and uh, and if you can fill that category quickly, uh, people associate you as the king with that category. And there's a couple of cool examples of it. You know, like uh, Five Hour Energy. Mm-hmm. The person who found they have eighty percent market share. The person who founded it was just like, I'm not tired and thirsty. I'm tired. Right. And if I was tired and thirsty, I could get a water. Because I hate choking down 20 ounces of Monster Energy mm-hmm. or some other product like that when I wish I was just a shot. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was, it was, they aren't even in the drink cooler. They're where the lighters used to yeah. be. No, distribution. They so so the, they, the drink companies can't even respond. Right. They're like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. You're by the lighters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you put two in your pocket. I don't use the stuff, but right. it's a great example. Yeah. Uh, the Chrysler minivan. I mean, we're going way back, but yeah. Lee Iacocca bet the company on it. And 
most of us who were born, you know, in the 70s or before remember the, the station wagon with the third row facing back. Oh, yeah. Great car, right? Yeah. We all loved them. But it, it turns out that the minivan was actually different mm-hmm. and better. Yeah. You know, better visibility. The doors slid out so you didn't bang the cars next to so you. You could walk to the third floor. I mean, it was – and so Chrysler did it. It took Toyota and Honda 35 years to catch them. Mm-hmm. And Chrysler and Ford failed, you know, trying. So, like, create a category. HubSpot did it with right. Inbound. Mm-hmm. You know, Salesforce did it with no software, you know, in the cloud, you know, on CRM. And they've had to increase their category size because they ran into the walls. You know, because Salesforce isn't a CRM. It's an ERP. Yeah, totally. It's totally. So they, they've blown out their category. Mm-hmm. So that book is very influential. And I would say if you've got even a hint of category or trying to differentiate or you're struggling with how to talk about your business, read Play Bigger. For fun, outside of building the predictive index, uh, do you still get on the water? What else do you like to do for fun these yeah, days? Yeah, I do, I do a lot of sailing, but I think what's really fun is my boys and I, you know, buy the world's crappiest boats on Craigslist and we rebuild them. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so you work with your hands. It's you, you work in software or you work with, you know, science, you know, like psychometrics. Mm-hmm. Those aren't as tangible as like making something. Right. We try and make sure we have all our fingers at the end of the weekend. <laughs> but we, we definitely have fun making stuff. And it's amazing. YouTube, you can find makers of anything in YouTube. Thank God for YouTube. Oh, God. Like, the, honestly. Maker, the maker movement on YouTube is, is intoxicating. Yeah. Like, How do they do that? Oh my God, I'd like to do that. Yeah. Like, I think I might be able to do that if I bought some tools. Yeah. I've been looking at YouTube in the hardware store and I need this, I need this. Yeah. Like, I mean, I am not handy around the house at all. So that's my ability to diagnose can I handle it or not. Now, someone did YouTube un- clogging the drain and I'll look at it like, oh, I can do, I that. Can do that. And I save myself $250 from hiring a plumber that comes to my house and is like, oh, that's an easy And you feel really good about it. I feel great. Like, I'm like a hero. I cleared drain. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> like, I totally did it. So, well, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, share all the details on your background. Obviously, all the great things you're up to at Predictive Index. And I'm excited for Optima next year. That's going to be three times bigger. It is. You, you heard it here first. Keith, great questioning. Thanks so much for the time. Great energy. Love, love, love your angle. Keep up the great work. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.